Good evening. I'm Milo Edwards, Brackets Future, and it is my unfortunate duty to report to you that since the time of recording, the UN has in fact rescinded Matt Hancock's offer of a job. Welcome to James Acaster Future, where we're all James Acaster. That's right, we're all here and we're all James Acaster, so let's crack on. <laughs> either either you two are a James Acaster? No, no, I'm no. Oh, I'm not I don't I don't do voices. I'm not I have <laughs> the no same voice as to do whiteface and I respect <laughs> yeah. that. I, I'm gonna do one more vo- I'm gonna do the only yeah. voice I can actually do effectively, which is everyone on the Twitch stream knows is Newman <laughs> from Seinfeld. Yeah. And I'm gonna say to our audience, a very warm hello Jerry. That's right. Uh, We're here with Newman from Seinfeld, (laughs) one of my favorite characters. (laughs) This is going to be such a contrast to the segment that where we talk to journalist and author Um, Daniel Trilling about the history of the Home Office and how immigration policy in Britain got like it is. Yeah, yeah. It's James Acaster, James Acaster, uh, brutal racial violence, James Acaster. (laughs) That's the the James Acaster sandwich (laughs) we're making. Let's talk about immigration. In the TF Dark Kitchen tonight. Yeah. Um, actually, up to on the subject of James Acaster, uh-huh. I'm going on a stand-up to which I'd like to plug at the top of the show. Uh, is um, it with James Acaster? It's with, with James, James It's me doing this voice <laughs> on stage. I lived in Russia. Let's crack on. Let's crack on. You can come and see me in Birmingham on the 23rd of November, Liverpool on the 24th of November, Manchester on the 25th of November, uh, and hopefully Glasgow on the 26th of November, but that's not yet certain. So there will be a link to my events page on my website in the description. <laughs> Crack on over there and buy tickets. You veered into Michael Caine territory. Yeah. Now, <laughs> listen, that reminds me, actually, there is also, and it's more appropriate in the Michael Caine voices, there will also, Master Bruce, <laughs> be a date in London. There's going to be a smoke at a Seckford on the 26th of October. It's a lot sooner. <laughs> it's in London. The headliner is going to be Archie Anderson. So if you're not a Tart, get yourself down there. Uh, the, the link with the Tart is also on my oh, website. Also, if you're a Tart, get yourself down there. Yeah, also, if you're a Tart, we don't mind Tarts down there. <laughs> no, uh, boy, this is going to be a jarring shift in tone in uh, about yeah. 30 or so minutes, huh? Mm. <laughs> um, like a ski slope. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. look, we've got a few things to talk about before our conversation with Daniel. Uh... Uh, oh, oh, Matt Hancock mm. alert. Yeah, chiefly, uh, chiefly James Acaster. Yeah. No, there's a Matt Hancock alert. I'm seeing Matt Hancock. Oh, shit. Uh, I'm seeing um, uh, the Matt Hancock. Uh, 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 the big Matt like, Hancock news ticker that yeah. we installed. The Matt in Hancock the symbol has been beamed into the sky. Off. Yeah, uh, it's just, we're just getting a big like uh, fucking. That's yeah, right. the Matt Hancock symbol is just a dog staring open mouthed at an Alexa. <laughs> uh, it's just a silhouette of Matt Hancock I thought, running. I mean, I. I I found out via an via an alert on the Matt uh, Matt Hancock mm. app, Matt Hancock. Yeah. Um, so an app, but it's still running, by the way. Like it. Yeah, it you're, is on, still uh, you're on what you some call sign weird Matt Hancock MP. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. The influx of the right. something awful people are posting him. So uh, mm. look, uh, let's. Matt Hancock has been uh, announced. He's a he's a comeback. He's a special mm. representative for financial innovation and climate change for the UN's Economic Commission. He's going awesome. to like he's going to get Africa in the, as a continent into NFTs. 
Yeah. He's going to become a microbanks guy or a microloans guy. Just fantastic. This is everything we've ever wanted for Matt Hancock is for him to be kicked upstairs to a do nothing job at the UN. It's that's awesome. just the, that's like a it's like a happy ending for him, you know? Oh yeah, I mean this is literally the best it possibly could have gone because yeah, like a good, yeah. good, good ending you get a do nothing job at the UN. Bad ending you and Nick Clegg and you work for Facebook now. Yeah. Uh, like those are your yeah. options with British politics. I'm bringing caramel waffles to Uganda. <laughs> so, but it's also it's also like, how on earth does he just keep getting jobs? Yeah, people look at that like this guy gets stuff done. Come on, <laughs> because because the UN and like envoys to the UN are viewed sort of as like an official joke, mm-hmm. and so it's it's just a nice place to put him. It's like it's like the farm where you claim to send a dog that you're putting down. You know, he's going to have lots mm. of room to run around and play and suggest microbanks to people, uh, and he's going to be very happy. You know, also, the other cool thing. Okay, so number one, right? Mm. If, the, if you think of the timeline of events, right? What happened here is. Mm. Uh, he does the weird. He gets like you know shit canned for the ultimate crime of um of basically Killing getting pussy. Nan. No, yeah, he, no, he's right, getting yeah. pussy. Uh, shit canned for that. The ultimate mm. crime. Never that's do right. that in, in government. Do not get your dick wet in the home. Yeah, office. he got his dick wet, and that was unforgivable. That's right. Uh, but then I think then he leaves. But he must know some. Like I think that you know, remember the weird video of him walking through his constituency that if you mainline Matt Hancock content oh, like us, you would have yeah. seen. I think that was his version of the Kevin Spacey. I always thought I could. Own your trust uh, video. Are you saying? Oh, yeah. Are you saying that there's like a separate but parallel Illuminati for dumb guys? I think yes. that is what I'm saying. He's, he's awesome. like, he's like, you gotta let me back in, or I'll blow the whistle on everything. But it's just a succession of dumb guy conspiracy. Oh, soft play, little St James Island. There's like a big ball pit. <laughs> Well, Little St. James Island already had a soft play. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the B plot of um of Eyes Wide mm-hmm. Shut. So like the group the group of guys who just like going to the parties to like yeah. hang out with each yeah, other. For the, um, and catch up with the like, yeah. No, it's but also like the thought of Matt Hancock now living in New York is very yeah, amusing he's, to me. He's gonna, awesome. like, he's gonna wander the halls of the UN. Time like timelines converge on a singular moment. A singular moment of Matt Hancock wearing a UN peacekeeper helmet because he asked if he could try one on and no one had the heart to say no to him. I am looking forward to that so much. He's going to really love New York. Mm. He's going to be like one of those British guys that's just really fascinated by mm. like Applebee's yeah. and like hoots, the hooses in Union mm. Square. Mm. Um, he's going to go. He is going to yeah, get lost he, in the M&M store in Times oh, Square. Yeah. <laughs> it's so exciting. He's going to be like the, the, por- M&M the, portion, the portion sizes are so the portion sizes are so big yeah. here. I can get a big oh, gulp oh, shit, from the he's Seven Eleven doing the US want. office joke of his favorite pizza place in New York being a Sparrows. <laughs> mm. Yeah, he's gonna go. To, he's gonna go to the M M&M and M store in Times Square and be like, "I love sightseeing in New York City," and then drown in a big vat of M and M's. Awesome. <laughs> but I, I think like he's gonna the, the plot of Home Alone Two <laughs> is happening to Matt Hancock <laughs> even as we speak. He's gonna meet Donald Trump. I've always said that yeah. Matt Hancock. I've said this before that Matt Han- the only explanation for Matt Hancock is like a kind of big, like a Tom Hanks big situation. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he's now even more closely doing the plot of Big. 
And he's because he's working at, uh, you know, a, a toy store for lanyard people, which is the U.N. Mm. You know, yeah. He's just he's Absolutely. just there. He gets to play with like, ooh, this is a this is a microbank that works on the basis of an app. And you take a picture of you. like he is going to learn. He's going to meet so many like like fintech guys. He's going to meet Dan Ariely almost mm. certainly. I think this is going to be so educational for Matt. He's going to like come home after a long day at the office and be genuinely excited that he met a guy from Korea. Yeah, mm. he's oh, he is going to be. He's gonna learn like he's gonna he's gonna have his favorite bodega. Uh, he's uh-huh. gonna be so happy. He's gonna happy. learn so much about different cultures at the UN. It's gonna be fantastic. I want to see his like what I, I did think, in my think, summer job report. This is a great opportunity for us because we could convince Matt Hancock on the Muammar Gaddafi division of Switzerland idea and make him <laughs> present it again. I I'm just I'm I'm fully in head of year mode. Just like I think this could be really good for Matthew. Yes. A hundred percent. I I look. <laughs> people are hating because they hate to see a pussy get a thriving. Basically, as I think what we're saying. Yeah, of course, of course. Because there is no like, there is no better time. There is no better time and place to be in New York than if you have a high paid like nothing job. Do you think they'll give him like diplomatic plates? Oh, he's oh, gonna have so, so cool. much fun. I think they might do, but like he's basically going to like be living the dream where he's just like he has a nothing job where he gets paid like a shit ton of money for it, um, and he just gets to spend the rest of his time like hanging out in like Manhattan, like the Lower East Side, and like getting pussy. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know. Like, I just you know, went to this club the, called the, the, the Box. <laughs> <laughs> the view from the UN building is incredible too. So like, if he you know if he can survive all of the like asbestos in there and the fact that it was built to 1950s specifications. <laughs> Have an amazing time. You know, you know what, I, I can just imagine him now, just pressing his face up against the glass, staring out at the river, just being like, "Ooh, wow, <laughs> the Big Apple, the city that never sleeps." I'm just, and he's he's going to, he's gonna like, he's gonna go have Gotham. tea at the plaza, like Eloise. Yep. <laughs> it's gonna be yep. great. Um, Matt, Matt Hancock is gonna go and have uh, have lunch at the American Girl restaurant where they seat you with the little dolls. So, and he's going to try to be talking to the doll about opportunities in fintech. I mean, the fact that he is basically like, you know, being we've appointed a guy who is, again, like a, a dog, a, who has the mind of a golden retriever, to be the representative for financial innovation and climate change. Like, not one of those is not important enough to have its own fake job. His previous job, his immediately previous job, was uh, UK government minister for not killing your nan, yeah. right? And he, suffice it to say, didn't do so well in that job. So this is like perhaps maybe solving climate change yeah. is more a challenge that's sort uh, of up okay, to his. Don't forget though, it's standards. a UN special envoy for for so it's he's not actually going to solve his maybe, job. Maybe maybe looking yeah. into reports about yeah. how we could theorize about how to form a committee that could uh, embrace innovative new ideas that could deliver a series of marginal improvements in how we address climate change with crypto. His speed with crypto with crypto yeah with crypto with crypto. With crypto. With crypto. God, he's going to meet a crypto guy in a bar in New York and he's going to lose all of his money immediately. But then he's just going to luck back into it again. Like I, that's NFT, NF, one of those NFT dogs, but it's wearing the UN peacekeeper helmet. <laughs> oh, NFT of Matt Hancock! I would buy that. I, I hate as much as I hate NFTs. I would buy one of Matt Hancock. He's going to become really good friends with Dave Portnoy. <laughs> He's going to start a podcast with him. Matt I think Hancock that's kind of where the end game Yeah, Matt. No, Matt. Kidding. Matt yeah. Hancock going on like cooking dinner with Frank the Tank. Perfect. <laughs> in fairness, in fairness, Matt Hancock could go and call her daddy because he knows about getting pussy. Yeah, that's true. What's fascinating is this man invented the tank. 
<laughs> so, but the other thing, right, is let's talk about the timeline of this, right? Mm-hmm. So Matt Hancock um, is fired uh, for uh, being a classic Casanova. Uh, for mm-hmm. right? the crime of the crime he's of getting fu- pussy. he's fired That's for having cock fired. confidence, basically. Yes. And uh, yes. not uh, leaning in um, for being an alpha. Yeah, he's fired for being too alpha. <laughs> Actually, That's for right. being a sigma because he transcended yeah, the boundaries right. of morality. <laughs> yeah, so Matt, in order to exercise yeah. masculinity, Matt, basically, Matt Hancock is a sigma. Matt Hancock, no, number one, Matt Hancock basically uh, oversees probably one of the the public health elements of the worst public health crisis in re- like remembered British history. And that's fine. Yeah. And, but then, and so he bees the minister for kind of killing, statistically, probably killing your nan if she's in a care mm-hmm. home. Then, even if she's alive, then, uh, you know, is, uh, gets ass in a Sigma fashion, uh, is fired. <laughs> um, and then, uh, and then gets, uh, makes this video of him walking around his constituency having like weird arm's length conversations with people who just wonder why he's there. And then, gets offered this job, but then chooses to announce it on the day that the report into the British government, British state's failings on handling COVID is released. I love that yeah, well, He was so only much. the health secretary, yeah. wasn't he? But that's, and I, I want to talk about that for a minute as well, right? Because the report basically says every wrong decision that could have been taken was, and we sort of know that, and we knew that at the time, we still know that now, the only politician. I'm out there shaking hands yeah. with COVID patients. Yeah. Genuinely, my favorite part of that was Boris announcing that and then almost dying of yeah. COVID. Oh, very funny. Um, shake hands with everybody. Uh, but Shake hands with danger. But then, right, overseeing this, the, but the report, the scope of this report basically says, look, uh, we were we were unprepared. Uh, no one seemed interested in being prepared. There was this sort of groupthink among um, uh, MPs uh, who weren't interested in in any all any kind of you know preparations for any of this actually happening. And then there was the decision to discharge all of the all of the sort of ner- old people with COVID into nursing homes, turning them into for? basically slaughterhouses, having sex with blokes. Yeah, <laughs> <Pretty> <laughs> um, so running disaster preparedness exercises so you can hang out with more dudes. That's right, right. But, but what I mean is right the the this, the the, sc- the report itself, right? It actually, I think it actually papers over the real problems why it happened like it did. And I sort of go back to like the reason that COVID hit Britain so hard partly is, well, wait, how come we have bed blocking, right? In the NHS, where if your old people will just basically live in a hospital because there's nowhere the, that the place can legally send them. How come we sort of, we have this, um, we, we have well, a, we because, have, yeah. because what happens is when you do atlyism and you plunder your empire to make uh, one social safety net, the NHS, it then becomes tremendously popular, and you have to preserve that uh, name at least, even as you're sort of rapaciously defunding it, mm. and so it becomes a sort of social service of last resort, mm. and it catches everything else that falls in between all the other things that you should be doing, mm. and you end up with people just occupying hospitals. I mean, we've said this before, but it's government by kaplunk, right? Yeah, they just yeah. keep pulling out sticks and seeing if it still works and and if the fact i think the fact that this report does not talk about even it doesn't it i mean look is it going to talk about the overall neoliberal mindset of like take of, of sort of slowly running down society as a going concern and then kind of shrugging when you have your society has to respond to something and it can't because you've run it down fine but it didn't even mention austerity Right, it's mm. it, it, it is the fact that that was not front and center. The fact we have we have basically defunded everything. There's no way we can. There's no way we can deal with all of these people in a way they need to be dealt with politically. Mm. The labor market certainly isn't going to fucking do it. And so there was this shitty, ad hoc, backward looking um, response to this. 
enormous public health crisis because because that's just the logic of the state that we live in. The the, the really fun thing, right, is um, doing this report now and doing this report at a time. It's like saying, okay, I'm going to investigate the Mm. fire because I've got it out mostly in this room. I've kind of got it tamped down. And as the flames <laughs> lick up the windows from outside. Because we like we managed to do, uh, in England particularly, you managed to do lockdown without actually locking down, mm. which was a fantastic move. Mm. Uh, and one of the things that, uh, and also, but on the other hand, vaccinate lots and early, and what these things conspired to do was to make it so that everyone got bored of COVID at about the right time that things seemed to be going back to normal or whatever, just in time for us to get hit with massive supply chain collapses, which is fucking could not have planned it any better. Oh, and of course, Mm. on on the subject of the supply chain collapses, um, our wonderful, Mm. fantastic independent Bank of England has decided Mm. they're going to, um, again, try to... um, uh, The the extent to which you... Okay, I'll I'll take it back for a second. One of the reasons that the... um, COVID planning went so poorly in Britain was that everyone just sort of told themselves what they wanted to hear, which is, well, this is basically a flu. It'll be fine. We don't have to do much. Mm. Um, and so what the and, and, and it means that they prepared for what they wanted the problem to be, right, mm. as opposed to what the problem was. And in, it's almost the same thing happening now with the shortages. We're pre- we are pre- fixing the problem because we the want sa- to it fix. It is the same thing because it's the same crisis. Yeah. There's no border in between those things. Yeah. But we're we're fixing the problem we want this to be, mm. and so for example, the Bank of England uh, is is it's our wonderful independent uh, central bank is going to raise the uh, base uh, rate. So this is how how uh, the base rate at which money gets lent at uh, from point two five to point five. Cool. And, right. and and I I think that look, it's it seems sort of stupid and technical, but I think it's worth mm. going into at least a bit. Because yeah. if you yeah, rec- it's like when you see a DJ turn one knob and you just go, oh, that's going to make Ooh. a big difference. Okay, sometimes Ooh, it does. What, what's 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 he doing that for? Okay, look, it's going to be something. Look, sometimes that does make a big difference. Um, <laughs> it yeah. depends on what kind of cost. Uh, so, <laughs> but right, so <laughs> the Bank of England just going shout out to his family, <laughs> uh, more or less. Um, so, one of the ways that money is actually created, right, mm. is through. Uh, commercial banks making deposits through loans to people and businesses, mm. right? If you're if you get a business loan of a hundred thousand like pounds or whatever, the bank doesn't have that hundred thousand pounds sitting around. It has some of it, but not yes. all of it. Mm. And so that creates a deposit in your account, and then you have to undertake economic activity to generate that hundred thousand pounds to pay it back. And then, mm. hey presto, a hundred thousand pounds now exists where it didn't before, mm. and then that can go into the bank's uh, uh, capital, and then they can lend out more money on the basis of that, right? Mm. That's sort of how that works. And so with the base rate, uh, by rising the base rate, the banks make a profit on the spread between the base rate that the Bank of England charges and what they charge you. So if they charge you 1%, Bank of England charges 0.5%, their profit's mm-hmm. 0.5%. And yeah. they're not going to take less profit. So what that me- but the Bank of England raising the rates does is it basically means that oh, they're, because they're saying they're only able to pull that one lever, right? But that's really the, one of the more important levers. Mm. And that's the main economic lever we've decided that you should be allowed to pull. That's that's mm. our that's our freedom of movement is yeah. raising the rates mm. because that enables or constrains business activity. Mm. And so what they've basically what they're doing, and in response to a crisis of material shortages, mm. right, of material shortages pushing prices up, because mm. so that's where inflation comes in. Because you need more money to do something if fuel costs more. So that's mm. how more money. That's how inflation really happens. It's a price phenomenon. Mm. And so what they're doing is they're saying, we're going to 
if 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 you the, there's a threshold of businesses that will mm. happen or not happen based on how much credit costs. And so they're saying we're going to reduce the amount of of activity in the economy, which mm. if your problem is a is a literal physical supply crisis seems fucking ludicrous. Mm. Mm. Um, awesome. Yeah. And I mean, right now, right, um, Maersk is no longer docking ships at Britain's main port. They've just stopped docking new ships because there's no one to transport the stuff. Love to stop right. docking. Yeah. There's no yeah. more docking. Britain, Britain is finally <laughs> banned docking, right? Yeah. There'll be no more of it. And, it's, and I, I think the other thing to, that's important to point out here is like, yeah, Brexit's exacerbating this, but the crisis mm. is everywhere. Like, yeah. America's not going to have its treats for Christmas. Mm. Um, and, 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 you know, it's what, what a lot of the interest rate sort of stuff like, like that does, the fiddling with the interest rate, mm. why it's important is that it's supposed to signal to business to um, undertake such activities as will control yeah, inflation. I'm, I'm, poking, yeah. I'm poking business with a big stick yeah. going, come on, generate economic activity. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Or generate the right come kind, on. right? Mm. Yeah, because the... Uh, and so... No, but that doesn't make more food happen. It doesn't. It doesn't mm. like build a flood. It's, al it's almost. It's almost as if if you want stuff to get done, you need uh, people. Yeah, you need labor of some kind. Yeah, it's not just. But that's like it's. That's what I mean. Is they're stuck solving the problem that they wish it was. Yeah, because that's the only kind of economics we can do is as as economics that doesn't some kind of like theory of value. Not that one though. <laughs> mm. No. Anyway, we're uh, only doing free economics. I notice we're actually coming up onto uh, onto time, especially including our uh, conversation with Daniel Trilling, which is going to mm -hmm. happen now. Uh, so I'll hand off to uh, other Riley. Yeah, future Riley from yeah. the past. Future Riley from That's the past. Fu yeah. Future Riley, why are you wearing that weird uh, like cyber headset all down yeah. one side of your face? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, see you in uh, in the next segment, everyone. Ah, thanks, past Riley. Uh, other Riley from the Mirror Universe, uh, who has definitely very sort of um, cleanly uh, handed off the recording to me uh, so that I uh, may now uh, have a conversation with uh, journalist and author uh, Daniel Trilling. I miss past Riley. <laughs> about the home office. Daniel, how's it going? Good, thanks. Um, so you've written... Uh, this is actually, you wrote this article a little while ago, a, a long read, um, all about how the home office came to be what it is today. And I just wanted to know if you could give me a little introduction to... Yeah. Um, could, you, could you turn that long read into a short listen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You go ahead and uh, uh, summarize and make that audio. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll give it a go. Um, yeah, so I've been covering... Uh, immigration and asylum for quite a few years as a journalist. And I suppose the idea for the piece came partly from the fact that if you speak to anyone who's dealt with those issues in the UK for any length of time, there's a kind of common sense of frustration and maybe even amusement at the, the way the Home Office will behave. So obviously, we, you know, we all know that British politics has got a particularly toxic kind of uh, discourse around immigration. You've had mm -hmm. years and years of Home Secretaries and other po prominent politicians 
promising to be tougher on various aspects of border control and immigration policy. Uh, but perhaps the, the, the kind of, and, and, and therefore you would expect the Home Office to, to behave accordingly. But I think the bit that people often find very puzzling is that it, it, it very often will behave in these completely self-defeating ways. So, um, I don't know, fighting hopeless court cases all the way up to the appeals court, for instance, when it knows it's going to lose and it's going to have to do what the judges that's, tell it in the end. That's the thing that interests me. Uh, and the thing that like, I kind of wanted to pull out from, from your article was the Home Office's like, uh, success rate when it takes uh, people that it wants to deport to, uh, to court is about like 40% as I understand it. And they, they take a lot of cases that they're not prepared to defend, uh, that are sometimes literally indefensible. Uh, but the impression that I get is that they seem to do it so that they can wash their hands of it and so that they can say, oh, well, it's not our fault. We've been trying to do the nastiest possible thing. And it's the courts. It's the woke lefty enemies of the people judges uh, who have taken this right away from us. Yeah, that's definitely a big part of it. Um, I think the other part, though, is that even when the Home Office then is set up to do something where the politicians really want it to be nice and open and welcoming and facilitate things happening, it still behaves in the same way. So like the Windrush compensation scheme is a really good example. I can't imagine that any politician actually wants that to be administered badly mm. and to be as hostile as it is being to people who've already been mistreated really severely by the British state, but yet it just happens. Or there was a story... reflexive. Yeah, there was a story uh, I saw earlier today about one of the, you know, one of these last minute panicked uh, visa schemes mm -hmm. that the government's introduced for, for lorry drivers and agricultural workers. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. I think it was the lorry, the, the lorry driver's visa. They're, only 20 people have been granted visas so far out of the 5,000 that they're trying to recruit before Christmas. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons mm -hmm. for that is that the Home Office is just sticking to its three week turnaround time on the visas, you know, so, <laughs> so, so it's, physically so that, cannot help themselves. I mean, I, I that's yeah. almost, yeah. if it, if it weren't so evil, it would almost be admirable the way in which it's so self-defeating. Yeah. But like, I, I guess the other thing there is like the staff culture. And that's another thing that you kind of get into a bit is mm. like the sort of like the culture of refusal and the like uh, need yeah. for like, uh, very fast refusals and to refuse more migrants than you accept and things of that nature. Mm. It's very funny that the Home Office, whilst it does have many deliberately evil policies and intentions, also simply falls victim to the same thing that plagues every business in this country, i.e. no one that walks there wants to do their job ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, and oh, Sorry, go ahead. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I was just going to say, you've got so yeah, you've got all of these kind of puzz puzzling questions about it. Mm. Um, this this way of behaving that is either very frustrating or I mean, some you know it it kind of makes people laugh, even if it's kind of laughter in desperation when they're trying to deal mm. with the system. Uh, but the bigger question is, well, why has it got like that? Presumably, the people that work there don't get up every morning thinking, "I want to go into work and administer a really bad system," even on the even F on the terms that I set for it. Ten percent tops. Yeah, you know, probably you do get some people. I mean, I've, I've, to be honest, I've had jobs where I've, I felt like that about my job. But you know, um, mm. so, so the question is really kind of, well, was it always like that? How did it get to be like that over the time? And that's the, the the piece that I wrote for the Guardian earlier this year was really trying to dig into that. And I think what what we were trying to do that we felt hadn't been done 
sufficiently before was why not ask the people involved in building it and the people who run it and see what they have to say so so the the research i did for the piece was just try basically trying to speak to as many people who had worked at the home office or or do work at the home office as possible at at every different Mm. level of the department and i was interested in get through (laughs) uh i mean it worked to some extent i think the useful um detail there was that there are a lot of people who have previously worked at the home office and now have quite strong thoughts about it um so you have that, to imagine that quite... it disillusions people quite efficiently yeah well i mean what was interesting to me was to hear how people rationalized what they did so you would have quite a few people who acknowledged that bits of the system didn't work very well and would want to explain more well, here's you know here's how mm. i or we tried to improve things here's the fundamental reason why it didn't get better. Very often that would come down to um, civil servants would of, often want to blame the politicians with with quite some justification there. Politicians would want to blame either the civil servants mm. in terms of their working culture or just the way the system was set up. And they kind of had a point there too. Um, but I suppose there was always, um, most people I spoke to were, I think less willing to acknowledge the sort of fundamental problem, which is that the whole thing is at least talking about this is talking about the home office as some, you know, the department that polices immigration specifically, because obviously mm. the home office does lots of other things as well. But the promise that governments constantly make to voters is that you can have a system that gets rid of the bad immigrants and keeps the good immigrants. And that's, if you start from that point, you're going to create a system that is a complete nightmare, basically, because that distinction does not really exist in reality in the way that politicians and the media constantly tell people that it does. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the, the interesting thing, I, th- I think, about the Home Office, right, is that it is, if we want to look at this in sort of much broader context as well, a lot of the kind of, you might say, Western project for the last several hundred years has been to make the rest of the world pretty unlivable and use that to make our countries super livable. Yeah. Mm. And in, it's, it's like putting yourself at the bottom of a, a, a... It's like digging down a river so that it creates a waterfall and then being mad when the water comes over. If there are higher wages and, be, and better public services and so on and so on in your countries and you have a, and exist in other places, then people are going to try to move to yours. Like that's, it's almost like gravity, mm. right? And so then mm. we have this... We have this impossible thing where we have to resist, like we have to resist what is essentially almost a natural force. We have to make a big show well, of resistance. Speak, speaking of being self-defeating, yeah. speaking of being self-defeating, we can't stop making individual foreign policy decisions that hasten that or intensify it. Indeed, we cannot stop ourselves from doing individual acts of, say, regime change. To pick mm. one example, mm. that make countries impossible to live in and make people desperate to leave them. Yeah, well, what about all these cats and dogs coming over from Afghanistan? <laughs> so, what I, the way I think about it, right, is that we've is that that this is an impossible situation that we've created. Mm. And all of those places where reality has to rub up against ideology, where the circle has to get squared, where the contradiction lives, we mm. just pile them into the home office, where we have to, all of a sudden, we have to, at that, at that system, world system level, there is that contradiction of livable and unlivable. Uh, then within government, there is the contradiction of, uh, of the fact that like the treasury in bays 
mm-hmm. quite want more immigration because they understand that like that's kind of what the economy our economy kind of runs on especially uh foreign cheap labor and like gdp mm. is largely a measure of population growth as well mm. right and so mm. and then on the other hand and so you have to constantly have people coming in who all want to come in but you need to make a big show of not letting anybody in and mm. the, i think the reason that home office policy fails so much beyond i mean beyond the individual sort of systemic failings within this within the office itself is that it's set up to do an impossible task and so all it is able to do mm. is bluntly administer cruelty because and i think one thing you capture very well in the piece is that it's basically outside of political control like one i think one of the reasons that the um the windrush compensation scheme was so poorly administered is that i don't really think that the home office reports to any politician as much as they report to the barkley brothers rupert murdoch and Viscount Rothermere, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, saying it's outside of political control is true in one way, but I suppose looking, if you look at it the other way around, it's the most highly politicized department of them all, mm. and therefore operates to a logic that even the politicians can't mm. really shift when when they when they try to. I think I just want to go back to like the democratic the control. Point. Sorry, but yes, you're right. Please carry on. <laughs> yeah. Um, just going back to that that kind of idea about it also has to hold the you know i think that, i think that's absolutely right that it's it's kind of got, it's got to hold all of the contradictions of government and then hold all of these you know the contradictions of britain's role within the world mm. um which i think is very true although i think i'd put it slightly differently to how you were all putting it mm-hmm. in that i think it's i think it's important to be careful about framing migration as a, a kind of retribution for things that a powerful country like Britain has done wrong in the past, mm. Mm. partly because that makes the migration itself look like the problem, but also because I think it's it, it, there's a lot more going on than just that. So like, yeah, if you're talking specifically about people who are displaced, so refugees from Afghanistan, for instance, you know, that's obviously got a really clear link with um, decisions that named British politicians have taken within recent memory and so on. And yeah, there's a huge amount of effort that goes on to kind of erase those connections. Mm-hmm. But the, the that's a really important part of what's going going on at the Home Office and going on with, with border policy more generally. But mm-hmm. I think the bigger contradiction is the fact that Britain is a country where migration, both immigration and emigration people coming and going is is just a huge part of life. It's it, mm-hmm. it's a kind of staple feature of life the whole country and to a certain extent the state is set up to facilitate that but you have the department that holds all the power over controlling that that has to pretend that migration is this tiny little thing that is as limited as possible Mm. and that's for me where the contradiction lies you know people are moving around all of the time but the home office has to sit there every day pretending that the population is completely static and that only these tiny insignificant categories of people are let through the door and you know the the vast hordes of the unwashed foreigners are all, are all kept out and it's just it's it's fantasy it's a complete fantasy what basically. interests me is uh, like mm. uh, of course we don't want to suggest that that migration is sort of this form of like ethnic retribution or whatever we're not doing like camp of the saints <laughs> but what what does what does interest me is the idea that uh in particular, British foreign policy, even things like aid policy, uh, they don't necessarily like. I'm not so much interested in whether they 
you know, change the amount of migration or even that, you know, migration existed before that. It's that uh, it, it tends to make the people, uh, more people who migrate here more desperate and more exploitable. Mm. Uh, and I think that lays the groundwork for a lot of the other stuff that the Home mm. Office does. Because you can see this in the difference between the way the Home Office treats, say, EU migrants and not. Um, there's a There's a lot more sort of like... Uh, there's a lot sharper enforcement there because they're politically acceptable to to kick around. Yeah, although that then de- it also depends on who the EU migrants well, yeah, are. Yeah, very mean, much. Yeah, I think I think there's a couple of things going on there. I think you've got the way I would see it is more that people are you know people are moved around by capital, mm. um, and that pushes those forces push people in all sorts of different ways, and Britain plays a role in the kind of global system where it basically is responsible for causing a lot of the disruption, uh, you know, moving, allowing people to move huge amounts of money around, steal money from countries, um, run, you know, kind of businesses that destroy the planet through pollution and all of that. And people moving for all sorts of reasons, some for urgent emergency reasons and some moving for work in quite comfortable ways, all are, a result of that system sure but in um, terms of the like feedback loop for that the, we're not getting uh, like a vans with billboards on them saying go home for people who move here from germany well no well we may be so this is this is kind of what i was getting to that what britain and all other nation states mm. apply in response to that is a, is a filtering system that's kind of how when i've written about borders in the past i've tried to get people to see that they're actually you know, they're not kind of these static things. They're they're ways of turning people, putting people into different categories, and then filtering them according to the political priorities of whoever's running mm. that mm. system. Every and, Home Secretary for the last twenty five years just re- just like doing the sort of knee reflex hammer thing with the phrase Australian points based immigration <laughs> system. Right. So that tells you, yeah, and that's kind of the the kind of code word for the kind of filtering that. Um, politicians in britain tend to think the public want less strongos and bogans (laughs) (laughs) but that's got so this is where i think the things get a bit mixed up because you've got several different things going on there at once Mm. so there's this kind of really rigid sort of um economic hierarchy to things you know you see that that coming out in the 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 thing you know the thing politicians will also say as well as australian points Based, Australian style points based system is they always go on about wanting the brightest and best mm-hmm. you know so it's the idea that the system will facilitate um, again going back to this idea of the good migrants um, and then keeping out the bad and it's how the so-called bad migrants are defined that you start to see all these other kinds of hierarchies coming into mm-hmm. play so one major one and I think this is what you were getting at already is is a kind of racialized hierarchy mm-hmm. where people who are racialized as non-white get worse treatment at the hands of the system in all sorts mm. of ways. Um, but there's also a kind of economic hierarchy that that links into that as well, where you know you can say, for, for instance, that EU migrants get better treatment. Well, there's a huge difference to how a border guard is likely to see um, you know, a well-dressed Germanic-looking businessman and uh, somebody coming from Romania Mm-hmm. Uh, Bulgaria, somebody who's of Roma origin, and so on. And I think actually um, looking at how all of that mm-hmm. is changing now that people from the EU are being subjected to the same 
filtering system that people from the rest of the world have been subjected to already for years shows you exactly how those hierarchies are being applied mm. um so i mean it's really violent and there there are infinite ways that the home office has of making people miserable at the border i guess is my, so my main point I, I, there. let's focus again on the on the home office itself right mm. um we talked a little bit about asking the question how did the home office get like it was. I think we've got this, we have our sort of explanation around, say, uh, uh, capital, Britain's role in the world, how the home office has this impo- has, has forced to have a basically impossible job that it can only do by being as cruel as possible. Let's talk about the actual history of the institution. It was founded in 1827 as Her Majesty's Office for Scrutinizing the Irish. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, actually, technically, it was founded in response to anti-Catholic, anti-Irish hey, riots enough. in the 1780s. But yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, so the, how did the Home Office get like it did? Well, so it, I mean, you know, it's one of the oldest government departments. It's always been the so-called law and order department. Um, Riska Hargitay works every, there. <laughs> every, every country's interior ministry, whatever it's called, is going to have a pretty brutal history to it, I think. Um I think that there's definitely a kind of long-term aspect to it that the British state has always, I guess the kind of narrative that Britain likes to tell about itself is it's the, you know, it's the home of liberties and the freeborn Englishman and the state, you know, unlike those dirty, weird Europeans, the state kind of lets people get on with their business and Mm. doesn't interfere in their lives. But actually, you know, there's a, there's a whole history of, Britain is having this extreme. <laughs> it, it may not be true. Oh shit! Oh, fuck. I, I would suggest, mm. um, and probably the Home Office is the thing you would look at to see where it might not be true. Um, I think because of what Britain is, and you know, uh, the way the state was formed, the empire it ran, and so on, the way that the domestic working class were treated, mm. and and so on, the the Home Office has had this always had this pretty brutal edge to it mm-hmm. um you know it was the if i think i've got my history right here it was the home secretary in the 1970s that sent troops into northern ireland mm-hmm. you know it's had it's it's had this very heavy kind of security mm-hmm. role to it always um so there's always there, there's also always been a, in kind of like whitehall mm-hmm. law that that's meant that the home office has always had this kind of pretty grim vibe to it um you know, it, it was it was the department that administered the death penalty. Mm-hmm. I think there's a story about how when the death penalty was still in action, it would have in in the old Home Office headquarters there were there there was a wall display that had the pictures of the people who were condemned to death lined up on it, and they would kind of move up the list. Mm. Oh, that's a totally yeah. normal thing to have, and not yeah. at all like a serial killer's <laughs> trophy room. Yeah, yeah. The, the Home yeah. Office is the only British government department that I think actually would have a collection of ears. Yeah. Well, whereas yeah, I mean, the thing is, it, it's like if you're sort of typified as a bit of a sadist, I think the Home Office or the Ministry of Defense are the jobs you get mm. shuffled into, right? Yeah. Well, whereas nowadays, yeah. of course, everything is now so soy that if the Home Office had that thing, if we still had the death penalty, they would all be like Funko Pops of the people condemned to death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I guess, and again, you could, you could probably pick, you could pick any other rich country in the world and you'd find the, the, the equivalent department would have have an element of this mm. to it. But I guess 
you, you know, the way that the British ruling class operates is it's also done on this kind of gentlemanly Mm. personal level and i think it's where those two things overlap that you get the kind of weirdness of it so mm. the, the the detail that i found that summed that up was that the the home secretary until well into the 20th century was personally responsible for verifying the birth of the royal heir <laughs> so the home secretary had to go to the queen's bedchamber as she was giving birth or just after and and visually confirm that the baby had Whoa, like official genital yeah. inspector. Yeah. Just Her Majesty's the, genital inspector. Yeah. Fantastic. And just imagine last, trying to be the, born with Pretty Patel looking at you. Just, you'd go right back in. You'd be like, no, 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 no. <laughs> well, the last royal heir that this happened to was Queen Elizabeth II. So the last oh, time wow. this was done was in 1924 or 26, whenever it was. Mm. So it's got that kind of vibe to it. And then in the sort of turn of the... What century are we in now? 21st. Mm. So turn, turn of the 21st century, um, it, it starts having all these extra expectations put mm. on it, many of which kind of revolve around immigration, although mm. counterterrorism is the other big area, so, which I didn't yeah. really I've got some quotes go from in. you. As a matter of fact, mm. we talk about the early 21st century, which, as you'll recall, well, I'm sure yeah. I'm sure I can explain it much better than <laughs> I can right now. So, yeah. <laughs> so we're going to cross examine yeah. you now. Let <laughs> me just put to you something you said earlier. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see yeah, how clever you feel then. Yeah. Uh, we're going to we're going to hear from past Daniel. But yeah, so if this is uh, this is sort of in 2003, right? This is um, because if you recall back to the 90s and early 2000s, there was the Blair of the 97 election campaign mm. that basically the following day gets replaced by the Blair of the rest of his career, mm. which is as mm. this kind of petty authoritarian. Mm. Um, and so uh, you, you, you say, Daniel, in your article, in one notorious episode in 2003, and this is also about press collaboration, mm. Downing Street collaborated with The Sun on a special Asylum Week. A series of articles that began on Monday with a piece that headlined Halt the Asylum Tide Now and ended on Friday with a column by then Home Secretary David Blunkett promising, quote unquote, draconian measures to clamp down on illegal immigration. He's basically saying to the son, I promise you, I am going to be as cruel as possible. I feel like using the word draconian to describe something you're doing is is ill-advised. <laughs> like, I feel like draconian is an inherently pejorative adjective. Like you could use something like Not if you're a home secretary. Stringent yeah, that's, that's, or thorough or you know, and we <laughs> might think it's draconian, but you shouldn't really like that is very much the quiet part. Yeah. You know? Of course, of course he was smothered to death with cloaks after this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and he was listening to Good Charlotte yeah. while he wrote that. So um, but what what I sort of reason reason I sort of pull that out from your piece, right, is that is that this it's it's it shows that sort of a lot of these tools that the Tories are now using to sort of uh, you know criminalize and 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 immiserate people uh sort of who are trying who are coming here uh who are just doing what it is natural moving people move mm. uh a lot of those tools in 2003 sort of arose in the new labor home office right that's when we made the tools yeah definitely and that goes back to what I was saying earlier about the idea of filtering. So, you know, you mentioned this kind of contrast between the Tony Blair of the 97 election campaign and the Tony Blair that took office immediately after. And I guess the contrast there is between someone who kind of looks open and liberal and progressive and, you know, um, modern and is about improving everything. And then you get this petty authoritarian. I think actually those two things work in tandem. Um, a friend of mine, uh, just so 
And I think this goes, this is like the, not, the sort of the logic of neoliberalism, really, mm. which is uh, the, way, the way a friend of mine once put it, which I think was very good. It's, it's like the state stands back and lets the market go for it. Mm. And, then has to, then, and then when things go wrong, has to step in and be kind of even more sort of authoritarian and clumsy, trying to sweep up the mess mm. that it's allowed to develop. And I think the uh, kind of, the the development of all of these increasingly authoritarian tools to police immigration is a really mm. good example of that. So um, new labor ended up in that vicious cycle, not because it was a government that tried to prevent immigration, but it was a government that promised the population, we can have loads of immigration that serves the needs of the market and mm. the, therefore the economy and therefore you, the, you know, the, the British population. Um but if you don't like aspects of it, then we'll crack down really, really hard on it. To, so, to so keep same you all thing happy. with uh, with like we'll give you you know slightly more generous benefits, but also we will drive a tank through the houses of benefit cheats. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, which, which they were doing at the same time. And, 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 and you, you say after that as well, you quote Jackie Smith, a subsequent Home Secretary. Mm. Who says? Who said? Uh, immigration <laughs> eventual contestant on uh, <laughs> a fucking Strictly Come Dancing. And Home Secretaries love to go on Strictly. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, because also she's not the only. Uh, what do you call those kind of shows? Sort of reality yeah. dance shit celebrity um, shows. <laughs> <laughs> you may call them that as well. Um, but wasn't Alan? Alan Johnson was like he on was the, the masked singer, singer, wasn't he? Yeah. What, what ruled and, about and no that? No one knew who he was. What absolutely Nobody whipped who about he was that he was that he took the mask off, and you can see all of the judges looking absolutely puzzled. And Jonathan Ross had to go. That's Alan Johnson, and then Rita Ora had to go like, right, yeah, I know who that is. <laughs> no, but, so, uh, Je- uh, uh, former Home Secretary and more recent, uh, I believe, yeah, strictly contestant Jackie Smith mm. uh, said to said to you in an interview, immigration is a good thing for the country, but you can't sell that to the public. So therefore, what you have to do is convince people that you're going to then engage in filtering. Well, mm. well she uses more words, but essentially engage in filtering. Mm. And that's why we have to be super tough on deporting people. And I wanted to talk about that phrase. You can't sell that to the public. That sort of moral cowardice. Yeah. Well, it's the... Um, we talk about, you know, like, like, like the neoliberal model of sort of essentially interfering to serve the needs of business, more or less, in the state or in society, whatever you want to call it. And what we have here, right, is... Um, is, is, is we have someone who has said, yeah, we're going to do this, this filtering system. And I'm, I know we're going to be tough on people. I know we'd love to have more immigration, but because of our model of governance, we have to say that we're not going to, but at least we're, we new labor are going to have the decency to feel bad about what we're doing. And I think that's just such a perfect sort of summation of a lot of this, right? Is that, you know, you, um, is that in, in you, many, can have, yeah. you can have evil or you can have gleeful evil or regretful yeah. evil. Yeah, yeah. And but if you don't yeah. choose the regretful evil, then you're a bad person. Because and it's, mm. it's because I think and it's it because I think right. Well, a big part of this is a just then as you say, Daniel, the nature of one of these or uh, uh, offices in a sort of uh, rich Western country is always going to do something like this because of the world we live in, mm. uh, and. Well, not always going to, but because of the politics of the places we are in, they are going to have a history of doing that. They're going to want to do that. Um, but you know, additionally, uh, right? Like you're, yeah, you have, as you say, you have the um, anyone who sort of wants to come in and sort of thinks the state is basically fine as it is, just wants to operate it. They're going to do the evil thing. The only valence is, are they going to feel bad about it? Yeah, that's definitely part of it. And I think the other um, 
the big pressure that that really came out in 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 the interviews that I did with people is that that's to a huge extent determined by the kind of pressure that people within the system feel mm-hmm. from the right wing mm-hmm. press right wing media outlets yeah. that that that's what they've always got one eye on that's the thing that they are worried is going to go for them if they seem to be soft at any moment um and i think i mean do you know i i i sort of feel like i spent a lot of my time as a journalist trying to uh point out various things that new labor did wrong and got wrong mm. but i kind of feel like this piece was the last time i'm going to do that because it's actually really far away mm. um in the past now and the stuff that's mm-hmm. happened since is it, it, it it's been really important to show the links between that period and what we've ended up with now but actually there's so much it, it's taken on such a new dynamic now i think people need to turn their attention to what's happening now and mm. the way i would explain that is actually one one of the most interesting interviewees unfortunately interesting to me but way too kind of like technical and nerdy to go into the article mm-hmm. was charles clark who was home secretary for just just a year or so mm. um, in about 2005. But he, he's kind of like the arch new Labour technocrat. Mm. So he took it beyond just this idea of it being about being scared of the media and, you know, wanting to look tough and so on. But he he explained it as like the, the new Labour approach to all of this was that, yeah, you kind of gov- – you've got this kind of neoliberal form of government, but you've also got – really sophisticated new technology that's going to help you manage society with much more control than you ever could before um and that it's all about predicting what's going to happen next and make sure making sure that your systems are resilient that they can withstand what's going to happen next so if there's a new kind of um big displacement of people and you get lots more refugees your system you've you've kind of anticipated that and you're set up to do it and therefore what you need a low you need this huge complex mm. uh very technical system that gives you lots of control over people and at the t- you know at the time uh that new labor were establishing this they got a lot of criticism from from liberals like liberals in the kind of um mm. small l liberal yeah. i guess um that this was a threat to civil liberties you know the, not just the immigration and asylum but everything mm. they were doing around the war on terror at that time mm. and so on um and i suppose the new labor argument would have been yeah but this is all for good intentions because because if you if you have that degree of control over populations if the state can see what people are up to it needs to intervene less because it can kind of anticipate what's happening and mm. um mm. you know act accordingly mm. now okay i i think that's a terrible argument and leads to all sorts of problems of its own but the crucial difference that we've had since 2010 is that you've had governments that have wanted that degree of control over the populations while also taking an axe to the systems that are supposed to give give it give them that control. Mm. And so you've got this much more purely brutal kind of lashing out from the states. Yeah, so the way, mm. oh, sorry, um, and a much a much kind of direct much more direct link between the demands of the right wing press and the kind of right wing fringe and the people who are at the heads of departments. Mm. So obviously the hostile environment that Theresa May uh, launched at david cameron i think people forget this it was, the hostile environment was a creation of david cameron's not of Theresa mm. may's she was following orders so to speak um <laughs> but there, there's that which was taking the kind of tools that that new labor had built and just turning them into these kind of much blunter and much more brutal things and then obviously since 2016 you've had um that intensify as these things have got caught up in the kind of 
polarization around Brexit and then the ultimate result of which is the arrival of one of the most authoritarian home secretaries in living memory. Which is saying a lot. We have now. (laughs) Which is exactly, which is saying a lot. Well, I wonder whether that's like the linchpin of this whole, linchpin might not be the right word, but that's like kind of like the center of this whole thing, right? Which is that, you know, where you have like this degradation of the state that's sort of happening on Mm. this kind of like wide scale holistic level, um, you've got this like home office, you've got like the home office that even though kind of arguably has the most political power of like any sort of department also like can't really do anything in the same way that Mm. like most departments can't do anything. So then all we're sort of left with is the kind of like cruel theatrics, which like that's not to say that like the theatrics don't have like material consequences or that like people's lives aren't being made miserable as a result of Mm. it. But it's more just along those lines of like every like I wonder whether like politicians across the board have sort of accepted that there is no meaningful way to like control immigration despite like it being kind of the center of everyone's manifesto. Mm-hmm. Um, there is no kind of meaningful way to like do this kind of like tech tech integrated prediction. So mm-hmm. the only way that we can like meaningfully match our um, manifesto promise is to kind of publicly show that we are being as cruel as possible mm-hmm. again like to placate like tabloid media and uh yeah like and also and like british alba e- like media <laughs> it's to placate british it's, um, everything is to placate that one account british alba that replies yeah. to everything yeah. boris johnson does <laughs> they, of being they like they yes put me in the cockpit of this fighter jet going 500 yeah. miles well, an hour and the only button is the <laughs> racism button yeah <laughs> well, this, well like well then well then we'll, we'll then you end up in a situation where it's like the hostile environment isn't even like an intentional policy right mm-hmm. like it isn't even kind of like an instrument that is being used to serve a political purpose. It's literally just the cry laugh emoji, yeah. mm-hmm. right? It is literally there just to make people miserable because that is the only kind of meaningful thing it can do. Mm-hmm. Like, and largely that is just to like kind of troll people. Well, I had a discussion with um, Nate about this recently for a Britainology where we were talking about how the British Conservative Party are almost a bit unique amongst Western right wing parties in that they're so ideologically committed to austerity conceptually that it doesn't enable them to do the things that most right wing governments do like beef up the police mm. and the army so like the conservatives would like love to send in the troops but also they've fired them all <laughs> it's like a very like they really apply it they're like no no well, cops yeah. cops are socialists that's the government spending money <laughs> we got to get rid of them i think well, no, well, they've also got that thing where it's like they will increase the funding, but they're so addicted to like private partnerships. Mm. So it's like, yeah, we'll kind of like beef up the service, but it has to go through our mate down the yeah. pub who also runs this consultancy out of his garage. So I think like the, the way to see it, and I think sort of one of the things that you sort of drive at very well in your piece is that there's this sense that that so much of the functionality of its ability to actually engage in the doing of stuff mm. has kind of eroded and almost fossilized and been replaced by this fist. Mm. basically mm. um oh, we're at laboratory yeah <laughs> right mm-hmm. and, and that's all that's kind of left is is everything else has just sort of either rotted away or is just gone and now all that's le- and it's it's and all that's left in the heart of this what should be a sort of functional the arm of government of mm. yeah is just a fist yeah i think i think linking it to austerity is quite useful as well because in a way the home office is kind of a forerunner in that respect in that even though it's been asked to play this really important role politically and carry out what are you know very very complicated tasks you know if you just take asylum the 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 asylum system for instance assessing whether somebody has got an asylum claim that meets the criteria under 
you know the, the international the, the sort of internationally recognized definitions of a refugee is mm. it's really difficult it comes down to a a human relationship between two people the interviewer and the asylum seeker and it's about you know the narrative of someone's life um as well as kind of trying to work out if that person is telling the truth or not and so on um so for that to work you know leaving aside the question of whether whether we want the asylum system to be set up in that way at all or not, but even for it to work on its own terms requires a huge amount of investment in terms of resources and people. Mm. And the home office has always been run on a complete shoestring in that respect. So the, the entire bit of the immigration, sorry, the entire immigration section of the home office, I think has a budget of about 3 billion a year, Mm. if I remember correctly. And, you know, in, in government spending terms, that is tiny Mm. considering the amount of, um, work it's asked to do and I think you do absolutely you get that um, dynamic where all mm. that's left is is the fist mm. and all it's capable of doing is theatrics and actually that's that's how a uh, an immigration lawyer described what goes on to me described it as immigration theater mm. and that links back to what you were saying right at mm. the right at the beginning of our chat about how um you know, if you want to kind of understand the absurdity, look at how the Home Office behaves in court. Mm. You know, it, it it loses loads of the cases it brings to court. You know, it, it will persistently appeal against people's um, sort of applications or, or if they appeal and it loses, it will then appeal against the decision mm. and so on, even when it knows it's um, onto a loser. Um, and and that is all about being seen to say no. Well, it's because if you, you don't know, say, if if one person, if you don't fight one case, and you know, Turfina Plantation spoils at the Daily Mail sort of happens upon the the record of that case, then there's their cover story for the day. And, you you yeah. have to be the sort of inverse man from Del Monte. Yeah, <laughs> and I I think one of the if we want to sort of link this, I think as well back to one more thing, right? I want to talk about the relationship between I, I, I think the path the home office has taken is a great example of the rela- the way the relationship between uh, uh, the Labour Party and the Conservative Party mm. in as much as what the Conservative Party does and this is what they're doing now is they widen the Overton window with a hammer uh, because they are not careful managers of society mm. and then the Labour Party comes in and refinishes it and puts a nice windowsill on this widened Overton window for a couple of years until of course. Torfina plantation spoils uh, and her bosses mm. sort of. Uh, She's you know, got a lot to answer for. Uh, <laughs> manufacture the, the <laughs> manufacture the sort of Tory victory again. They take in, but and what they're doing now is they are taking another hammer to the Overton window. And I think rather than worry about, and you think as you say, you should understand the roots of this in New Labour. But if you want to think, of, th- keep thinking about the Labour Party. Think about how Starmer's Labour could potentially either unmake that Overton window or just do what labor always does and then just refinish the windowsill and make that wide far right Overton window much more appealing to look at and actually make it work a little bit more effectively for a wicked terrible purpose mm. you know I, I i sort of in terms of that relationship that's sort of how i tend to see it but i also notice we are slightly coming up to time so daniel i want to give you uh the final word oh wow big responsibility <laughs> um Okay, I'll try and I'll try and make this a word rather than a, a long discourse. But it, just picking up on what you were saying, yeah, I think that shows you the kind of decision that anyone who wants to oppose how this works has to make. You know, if if, if a party, you know, if the Labour Party wants to get elected to government, does it do it by promising to just manage this system more competently than the Tories, which is obviously what they're doing right now, uh, or does it actually have a 
a theory about how the system can be changed and made to work in a different way. Um, I would say it's really important to look beyond those kind, the, the sort of the choices that are there at the level of party politics. Um, the people that went into the new Labour government after 1997, you know, okay, some of them were horrible authoritarians from the outset, but you had people in charge of the immigration system who had been things like asylum rights campaigners and, you know, and, and yet they ended up doing the thing that they probably would have abhorred if you'd told them a decade earlier. And I think it tells you that, to me, it says once you get to that level of politics, your options are quite limited. Um, so for me, it's all about, well, what can people do to resist the system as it's operating now? Um, the reason why there's this um, moral panic of over lefty activist lawyers, for instance, is because people do find effective ways to defend rights within the system as it is um and the the progress comes from people that have sought to disrupt it in different ways so that's like uh you know communities organizing in solidarity with one another journalists exposing stuff that people basically want to ignore even though they know it's going on like with the windrush scandal uh lawyers finding ways to open cracks in the system and let people through because you know regardless of whether that leads to um you know, the Labour Party winning an election in 10 years' time, those are the lives of people here now that that kind of materially changes. And I think actually, for me at least, a successful left-wing challenge to how the system works now has to be grounded in that, first of all. It's not just about picking the right line to say at the level of discourse. It's about the demands emerging from that kind of that kind of fight. Well, I th- and yeah, I think that's a wonderful way to end it. Thank you very much uh, for coming and uh, hanging out with us and talking to the- us about this. It's been a very interesting conversation. I was pleased to have it. Me too. Uh, You're welcome. And yeah, and uh, to all of you out there in Radioland, uh, thank you very much for listening. Uh, we'll see you on the f- on the p- bonus episode in a couple of days, uh, which will be, uh, of course, great fun. I am sure. Yeah. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.